0: And uh, this week we've been looking at 21st century trends and missions. Today we're going to be looking at a theme and a topic that really spans all the centuries and missions. Why do we put God first? But before we do that, let's pray and ask the Lord to open our hearts, be our teacher, as we ask His Spirit to be our guide again this morning. Let's pray. Father, we're reminded that people need you from the song this morning. Or they need you physically far more than that. They need you spiritually. And, Lord, sometimes that motivation gets us started in mission, but sometimes it gets old and tiresome because people are not only in desperate need, sometimes they can be a real pain to deal with, quite honestly. And that motivation wears thin. Father, I pray this morning we'll be reminded of bigger motivations for mission. Uh, Yes, people need you and we need to reach out and desperately minister to them. But I pray, Lord, that you'll also remind us of the eternal impact we can make. And I pray, Father, that that will stimulate us, fire us up, and I pray that as a result that Calvary Bible and each of us individually here will take steps out to meet those needs of the people that need you. In Jesus' name, amen. The year is 1893. Peering out over the deck of the ship at the hot, steamy coast of West Africa are three men, Thomas Kent, Walter Gowans and Roland Bingham. This is the moment all three of these young men have been waiting for and praying for for years, because each of these three has felt a tug of God in their heart, a passion for people that need him, people in the vast interior of the west of Africa, an area that at that time was called the Sudan, an area that sometimes we call the Sahel today. Tens of thousands of people who had never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Each of these three young men felt God calling them to go and carry the gospel. And each of the three was convinced that if they answered the call of God, God would honor them, would bless them, and as a result, people would come to him. So each of the three had made great sacrifice to put God first. They left their families back, one of them from Canada, one of them from Britain, one from the United States. They had left their families back there gotten on this steamship, joined together as a team, and now had come across, and now they were eagerly awaiting to see what God was going to do, because they had put him first. Seven years later, another ship. This one heading in the opposite direction, away from the coast of West Africa. This time there's only one man. Roland Bingham is alone. Only instead of standing out at the railing of the ship, He's down in his cabin, near death with malaria. What had Roland Bingham accomplished in those seven years? Well, he had left his two companions in their graves, also victims of malaria. They had spent all of the money that God's people in three countries had sacrificially given for them to go. And what was the result? Well, there were no churches that were planted. In fact, there was not even a single convert, not a single person that decided to trust Jesus Christ as Savior during that time. And there were no missionaries coming out to replace them. As Roland Bingham wrote back to Canada, this is the darkest moment of my life. Well, was it worth it for Roland Bingham to make the sacrifice and put God first? At that time, it sure didn't look like it. And there are many times in our lives when it doesn't look like it either. When we face sacrifice, when we make decisions, we decide to put God first and we wait to see God's response and it doesn't seem to come right away or even after a long period. Maybe you made the decision to put God first and stand for Him in your business or in your school or among your family members. Maybe you recently trusted Christ. Maybe it was a long time ago. But you decided you were going to put him first and share the love of Christ, share the gospel of Christ with people around you. And you waited for a warm and welcoming response. And there was no welcome. In fact, people around you became cold and distant. Maybe even angry and hostile. And now friends that you thought you had, you don't have anymore. Family members that were loving, they wonder what's going wrong with you. Business associates think that you're a little bit crazy and now they're leaving you at a distance and you're asking the Lord, Where is it, Lord? Where's the blessing? Why should I put you first if this is what I'm going to get? Maybe you decided to honor God and put him first by making some serious financial sacrifice. Maybe it was in a faith promise program in years past. Maybe you stepped forward and you decided to give to a need and you waited to see God bless. And well, the financial blessing sure didn't seem to come. In fact, now you're just scraping to get by. And you look at others around you who have not given so generously, who seem to have more than enough money. And you're asking the Lord, why should I bother to put you first? Some of you have made sacrifices, putting God first to go on a mission trip, maybe to go to a Christian school. Uh, In some other way, you said, Lord, I'm going to make some financial sacrifice and to put you first. I'm going to set apart some time and put you first. And there doesn't seem to have any result, any blessing. Some of you that are younger, making some serious decisions over the next few years of your life. Are you going to put God first? And you're wondering, can God meet my need? Is God going to take care of me? Or does putting him first mean that I'm going to end up having kind of an empty life, stranded in some faraway place where nobody's ever going to hear of me, maybe giving up some happinesses that I might have if I don't put him first? Why should we bother to put God first? It's a question that mission, missionaries need to ask at any time. And those going into supportive missions like Calvary Bible Church, not just for the 21st century, but especially because as we've seen this week, The demands are still high. The places yet to be reached with the gospel are some of the most difficult the world has ever seen. There's lots of reasons why we should put God first, because he himself is worthy of it. We looked at that last Sunday morning. Because of world need, as we were just reminded, people need the Lord, simply because God's commanded us to put him first. But there's another reason I want to focus in on this morning, a reason that... That we see that reminds us of what will happen for us if we put Him first. If you have your Bibles, please, take them and open them to 1 Samuel chapter 2, where we see a principle tucked away, a promise of God in Scripture, in a remote little backwater of the Old Testament, on what will happen when we put God first. The background for this passage in 1 Samuel 2, well, it's a dark day for the people of Israel. The period of time in which we enter the story is the time of the judges. And you remember what that was like. It was a time when, because of bad spiritual leadership, people, of, the people of God were doing whatever they wanted and they were suffering tremendously for it. Invasions from the outside, corruption and mismanagement from the inside. The people who were supposed to be leading God's people in the righteous way were the priests. But as we enter the story in 1 Samuel chapter 2, the priests were a good part of the problem. The priest, the high priest's name was Eli. And let's see what we read about his sons beginning in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. Eli's sons were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. The next few verses tell us about the common practice of how the priests were to receive their portion of the offering. Skip down to verse 15. Even before the fat of the offering was burned, the servant of the priest would come and say to the men who were sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the man said to him, let the fat be burned up first and then take whatever you want, the servant would then answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Now, what's going on here? Well, the the most prized part of any sacrifice, any animal that was going to be eaten at all, was the fat. Now, some people who are trying to watch their weight today try to avoid the fat. But if you're in a place and a time when you're trying to get all the calories you can, that's the very best part. And anybody knows that meat cooked with fat in it, that's going to make it nice and juicy. And so, instead of taking the portion of the meat that God had said, this is for the priest, this part, however, is to be given to me, The fat, the best parts were to be given to God. The sons of the priests were coming and saying, you know, that's the cut of meat I want. That's the cut I want. And if you don't give me that, I'm going to take it by force. And the worshipers were saying, but but this is God's. This is the portion that belongs to the Lord. doesn't matter. You let us take our cut first. This would roughly be the equivalent of the pastors stealing from the offering over and above their, their salary. Instead of just taking their salary, they would just come in and help themselves do whatever they wanted. Shocking. They were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Perhaps even worse than that, drop down to verse 22. Now, Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of the meeting. Not only were they stealing from the offering, they were turning the worship place for the whole country into a brothel. So, God sends a prophet to speak to Eli about the sins of his sons and warn him that because he's allowing his sons to commit these serious sins, that he was endangering himself, his family, and really the whole nation. But in the process of giving this warning, the prophet utters a principle that ripples down through the centuries and touches each one of us today. A principle that tells us why we should put God first. It's over in chapter 2, verse 30. Therefore, the prophet warns Eli, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and your father's house would minister before me as priests forever. But now, the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be disdained. Those who honor God, God will honor. Those who despise him will be disdained. Now, what's God saying here? Let's unpack this in more detail. The word for honor here is a word that means heavy, important, significant. In English sometimes, if we want to say if somebody's important, we might say he carries a lot of weight. Or if we want to say that some matter or some issue is important, we might say that's a really weighty matter. Same idea here. See, God is saying that if you treat me as important, if you treat me as really significant, if you elevate me in your life and the way you live your life elevates me constantly and repeatedly, then I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to treat you as important. I'm going to give you an important, significant place to play in my plan for the world. But then, the verse goes on to say, there will be those that despise God. That's the same word that's used back in Genesis chapter 25 to talk about how Esau treated the Lord's, or excuse me, treated his birthright. Remember the story about how Esau comes in and he's hungry and his brother Jacob's there and he's cooking a big pot of stew and Esau says, man, that smells good. Let me have a bowl of your stew, Jacob. And Jacob says, sure, all you have to do to have a bowl of soup is sell me your birthright. Esau says, easy come, easy go, take the birthright, give me the stew. What does Esau think about his birthright? Eh, big deal, no problem, no, no worth no more than a few coins in my pocket. Sure, t- He despised it. In other words, he treated it as insignificant, as light. When we treat God that way in our lives, when we treat him as kind of insignificant, kind of there, but not all that's important for us. We will be, the verse says, disdained. That's a word that the root idea is light. If you want to say someone is unimportant sometimes in English, you'll say he's a lightweight, meaning carrying no importance, no significance in this particular matter. So God is saying that those people that say, okay, well, there's God, but you know, he's God, no big deal. I don't have to take him seriously in my life. God says, fine. Don't treat me seriously. I won't treat you that seriously either. I'll give you nothing important, nothing significant to play in my plan. See, the passage is telling us that if we put God first in our plans, that he's going to give us an important, significant role to play in his plans. Something that's going to touch all of eternity. But if we ignore God in our plans, God says, fine, you can ignore me, I'll ignore you. I'll let you go your own way, do your own thing, and you'll accomplish nothing more than just, poof, your life is over. Like chaff, it gets blown up and gets blown away and everyone forgets about it. Your life will go into spiritual oblivion. We put God first in our plans. He'll use us in His. If we ignore God in our plans, He'll ignore us in His. Okay, that's what the verse means, but how does it work itself out? Is it really true that it makes that much of a difference? To make sure we catch the significance of this verse, the writer of 1 Samuel spins out three stories that follow this verse, that illustrate it and drive it home so that we'll see exactly what God is talking about. The first story is the story of those that ignore God in their plans, so God ignores them in his, and it's the story of Eli and his sons. The prophet goes on to tell Eli that he and his sons are going to die on the same day and that somewhere down the line the priesthood is going to be stripped from his family. And the first of those prophecies is horribly fulfilled over in chapter 4. So it's turn over a chapter to chapter 4 when the Israelites are again at war with their constant nemesis, the Philistines. The middle of verse 1, the Israelites went out against the Philistines. They camped at Ebenezer, the Philistines at Aphek, verse 2. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? Let's bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, so that it may go with, with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. The people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phineas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. So Israel fights the Philistines; they get beaten. As they diagnose the problem, the leaders of Israel hit the nail right on the head. The problem is that God wasn't up, with us. So what's the solution? Let's go get God. Let's go get him and we'll bring the ark and with the ark, we'll have God right with us. You see, they were so far away from the Lord that their minds had, had, had actually been shifted into the worldview of the pagan people around them. This is an animistic idea, a pagan idea, a magical idea that if we maybe bring the ark, then we bring God. We can bring an object and we can have God and his power with us simply by bringing an object. The same idea some people have that by carrying their Bible with them, they automatically may protect themselves from some kind of bad thing happening. Or if you wear the right thing around your neck, like a cross, that maybe God will be with you in some special way. That's just a pagan, magical, animistic idea. That's exactly what Israel had slipped into. This shows how far from God they were. So they go and get the ark and they bring it, thinking that now they're sure of victory because they've got God with them. Well, the Philistines hear about the Ark, and because they're pagan people too, they've got the same animistic ideas. They think that maybe Israel's God is now in their camp with them. They think of the Ark as like one of their idols. And so they get really concerned about it, and they say, Listen, we've got to fight even harder. We've got to really put out this time. So verse 10 tells you what happens. So the Philistines fought especially hard. And the Israelites were defeated. And every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The Ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. And when blind old Eli heard that his sons had died, and the news came to him, he toppled over backward from the chair he was sitting in, broke his neck, and he died as well. Now, Eli and his sons were in a prime position to make a real difference for God. God had put them in a position of leadership. If they had led well, if they had taught the people the law, they could have begun to turn this nation back to him. But instead, when we think of Eli and his sons, what do we think of? Spiritual laziness, bad parenting, out-and-out sin. So, what does God do? He says, fine, go your own way, you do your thing, you enjoy the fat, you enjoy the best meals, you enjoy the women, you enjoy them, fine and you're going to go your own way and accomplish absolutely nothing for me. And several generations later, the priesthood finally passes from Eli's family. It's taken away from him in 1 Kings chapter 2. Probably the person who had the best spiritual insight into what was going on was actually the wife of one of these, these sons, one of the priests. Drop down to verse 19 of 1 uh, Samuel 4. This is Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant and near the time of delivery when this battle took place. When she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but was overcome by her labor pains. As she was dying, the women attending to her said, Don't despair, you've given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father and her husband. She said, the glory has departed from Israel. The ark of God has been captured. Ichabod. Kabod. That's the same word for honor, importance, significance. Ichabod means no honor, no importance, no significance. Don't get lost in pagan ideas, animistic ideas ourselves. It's not just because the ark is gone. This woman recognizes God's not with us anymore. We've ignored God. God's ignoring us. He's let us go our own way. And what's going to happen? He's not with us. And so our nation has fallen to this terrible defeat. We've lost the ark. You see, when we ignore God in our plans, He ignores us. Let's just go our own way, spend our life any way we want it. And when it's over, that's it. We die, the worms eat us, and there's nothing for the rest of eternity. That's the story of Eli and his sons. If you ignore God in your plans, he'll ignore you in his. Well, does that mean that God's plans don't get accomplished? I mean, if we ignore God and, and he lets us go our own way, does God then kind of be helpless? He can't accomplish anything? That's why the story continues with what happens to the ark of God when it gets into Philistia. A strange little story tucked away in 1 Samuel chapter 5. It gives us some interesting things about how God can take care of himself. Chapter 5, verse 1. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, and they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. Now, Dagon is their chief god. He's an idol with the body of a man and the head of a fish, because the Philistines spent lots of time at sea. So they take the ark, thinking that this is Israel's God, into their temple, and they kind of put it in front of their God, Dagon, standing up here. It's kind of like an offering to Dagon. See, they presume that their God, Dagon, has proven himself stronger than Israel's God, Yahweh. And so they're going to give Israel's God as a present to Dagon, their God. In their pagan, animistic mind, that's what they're thinking. So they bring the ark in, they set it before Dagon, and there he is, verse 3. When the people of Ashdod arose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. (laughs) They took Dagon and put him back in his place. The following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. (laughs) His head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. So they get up the next morning and there's the Ark of the Lord. Instead of standing up here, Dagon is bowing before the ark. Whoa, what's this all about? Well, <laughs> must have been just a minor tremor or something. Let's stand them back up again. So they stand him back up. The next day they came back. Dagon is back on his face before the ark of the Lord. And this time he's all broken up into pieces without his head in his hands. The story gets even more interesting. Verse six. The Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation upon them and inflicted them with tumors. I like the King James here. It says hemorrhoids. (laughs) Whatever it was, it was very painful. When the men of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy upon us and upon Dagon, our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, "Have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath?" So they moved the ark of the God of Israel to Gath. And verse nine and ten tells us that when they get to Gath, that people there got tumors as well. Drop down to verse ten. So they send the ark of God to Ekron, a third city. And the ark, as the ark was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, "They brought the ark of the God of Israel around us to kill us and our people." Verse eleven. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, Send the ark of the God of Israel away. (laughs) Let it go back to its own place, or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy upon it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. So they take the ark to one city first city and the people get all sick. Some people think this is the bubonic plague that has broken out. People are dying. There's all kinds of discomfort. They take it to another city. The same plague breaks out there. They take it to the third city. The same plague breaks out. And it's absolutely clear that the Philistines understand why this is taking place. Verse 7, verse 11. Both tell us they know this is Israel's God who is punishing them. Now, this is all very amusing. Israel's enemies suffering like this, the idol falling down, broken all apart. But it's not just here to make us smile. It's to remind us of an important lesson. God can do very well by himself. Thank you. God does not need you. He does not need me to accomplish his will. And it may seem strange to hear a preacher say that. But you see, God is all powerful. God is all sufficient. And God does not need our help to accomplish His will. This story reminds us that God could protect His holiness and punish His enemies even when His people refused to obey Him. He would take care of it Himself. And God can do that and He is doing that even today. You see, when God's people decide to ignore him or put something else first, whether it's their own comfort and convenience, whether it's their own career or their own bank account, whether it's their retirement fund or going to a certain school or whatever it may be, where they say, you know, I think God wants me to do this, but I'm going to do it over here and do it this way. I'm going to ignore God. God says, fine, I'll find somebody else. And I will find other ways to accomplish my will. Over the last decades, the missionary force from the West, we have seen a little bit this week, has begun to drop off. Many people from the West are less interested in making the sacrifices for mission, going themselves, sending their own sons and daughters, making the financial sacrifice and the time sacrifice for prayer. That's fine. God is raising up a powerful missionary force from the global South, as we saw this week. Now, the number of Koreans going out, 20,000. Number of folks from Latin America, 10,000. And those forces are growing at a much faster rate than the missionary force going out from the West. You see, if one part of God's world says, huh, fine, we're, we're going we're to do it our own, our own thing, we're going we're to put other things first, God finds another way to accomplish His plan. See, God doesn't need us. He will accomplish His plan. Why then do we serve Him if He doesn't need us? If, if it's not going to hamstring God if we serve him? Well, we don't do it because that's the only way to get God's work done. We do it, because when we choose to put God first, God graciously and kindly and mercifully, not because he has to, but for his own namesake and for our blessing, gives us then a significant, important place to play in his plan. That's the third story that unfolds from these chapters of 1 Samuel, and it's the story of Samuel himself. All the way back in chapter 2, maybe All the way back to chapter 1, you remember the story of how Hannah, Samuel's mother, comes and prays for a son, and God graciously gives her Samuel. And then she gives Samuel back to God by having him go and serve there in the tabernacle with Eli and his sons. Chapter 1, verse 26, talks about during that time as he grew up, the boy Samuel, this is in contrast to Eli's sons, the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature. means he was growing up and in favor with the Lord and with men it means his heart was tender to God means that he was seeking to obey God God saw that and he responds in chapter three you remember the story it's one of the ones we teach our children when they're little how God called out to Samuel in the middle of the night he went to Eli thinking Eli was calling him Eli didn't even understand what was going on until two times later three times later he says it's the Lord he says Samuel, tell God that you're ready to listen and obey. And Samuel listened and God gave him his first word from God. Look at what happens in the following days and years. Verse 19 of 1 Samuel 3. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. As Samuel grows up through his teens and his twenties, God begins to work through him. His heart stays tender to the Lord. He's listening to God. He's obeying. He's responding. And God begins to use him. Now remember, this is not an easy environment to grow up in. Samuel's not receiving a sterling model from those that were like his big brothers, Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons, or even Eli himself. Imagine what it was like. Hey, Samuel, we just took another piece of meat from the worshippers. It's barbecuing out back. Sure smells good. There's a piece for you if you want it. Hey, Samuel, uh, there's a girl out back. Sure is pretty. Wants to meet you. It was there all the time. The opportunity to just slip right into a, a nice, easy lifestyle that Eli's sons were showing Samuel by way of example. But Samuel didn't do it. He stayed faithful to the Lord. And during those years when the ark was over in Philistia, Israel was far away from God. But finally, Israel begins to want to repent and get right with God. And who does God use? The story is over in 1 Samuel chapter 7. Turn over there to 1 Samuel 7 verse 2. It was a long time, twenty years in all, that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim, that's where the Philistines had sent it. And all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, You are returning to the Lord with all your hearts. Then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourself to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israel put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel was leader or judge of Israel at Mizpah. See, God begins to move. People begin to repent. And where is the person God's going to use to lead a national revival? There's Samuel. And faithful to God, put God first. So God gives Samuel the privilege of leading this national revival. The whole country turns back to the Lord. And God gives Samuel the privilege of being the leader, of being the one to guide them and direct them and teach them his word. Well, the Philistines hear what's going on, that the Israelites are all assembled. They begin to worry about it. Looks like just maybe Israel is massing together for some kind of rebellion. So they mass their own armies. They come on up to to see what the Israelites are doing and to disperse them with violence if they have to. Verse 10, 1 Samuel 7. When Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offerings, the Philistines draw near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out to Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to the point below beth Car, verse 13. For the Philistines were subdued and did not invade Israelite territory again. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. The towns of, from Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to her. And Israel delivered the neighboring territory from the power of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Not only does Samuel lead a religious revival, bringing people back to God, he leads a, a revival that extends to the nation itself. The enemy is defeated. Towns are recaptured. The borders are restored. Peace is restored. Because Samuel put God first. What's the point? Folks, the point is God is going to accomplish his goodwill. And he'd love for you and me to be part of it. He gives us an open invitation and says, I've got a great plan. It's a plan to carry the gospel to the nations. It's a plan to bring change and revival in people's hearts in our home countries. I've got a powerful plan and I'd love for you to be part of it. If You put me first in your plans. I will use you in a significant way in those plans that I'm going to accomplish. But if you want to, you can ignore me in your plans. And I'll let you go your own way into spiritual oblivion. You can live your life, accomplish absolutely nothing that's going to count. For eternity. God began to teach me this lesson way back in seminary. Uh, I had finished up one year of seminary and was uh, working that summer in a summer job, and I was only going to be in that place for a couple of months. It was at a uh, uh, kind of a well-to-do restaurant. Imagine, uh, it was kind of like working, me working as a busboy over at Atlantis or something like that, okay? a place where lots of people coming in, spending lots of money uh, for food. And I was there for a couple of months, and as soon as I got there, I realized this was going to be a hard place to have a Christian testimony, uh, because most of the other staff there were people who did not love Jesus in any sense. Uh, there were the two guys who were gay, practicing homosexuals, and very open about it. Uh, there was the Jewish fella who hated Christians and was very clear in his hatred of Christians. Uh, then there was the manager, and the nicest thing I can say about the manager was that he was a drunken, foul-mouthed, womanizing bum. That's the nicest way I can put it. Uh, it was a tough place to be a Christian. And I was only going to be there for a couple of months. And I remember thinking my first few days there, you know, the easiest way to get through these months would be just kind of to hunker down, you know. Just keep my head low, do my job, uh, keep my mouth shut. And yet the Lord said, no, I want you to speak up, Steve. I want you to share your faith. Okay, I'll try. Began to talk a little bit. Let's let people know I was a believer. And you know what I discovered? There were two other Christians working there. They were also starting to share their faith. So we'd get together before work occasionally. We'd pray. We'd pray for individuals. We'd talk about people we were sharing with. We, we would talk about the response of people, see if we could follow up on each other. By the end of that summer, just about everybody in that restaurant had had a chance to hear the gospel from one of us. See, God had a plan for that restaurant that summer. His plan was to share his word among people that were there, and he put several of us there to do it. I could have kept my head down and missed a phenomenal opportunity to be part of something God was doing in that restaurant. Marsha and I saw this same lesson over in Ethiopia during our years there. We've already told you that nine of those years were spent during a Marxist government. Let me tell you about one of my heroes, an Ethiopian who lived in southern Ethiopia named Wurku, Wurku Goli. Uh, Warku was a phenomenal leader. He had inborn, indeveloped leadership ability. And he was chosen to be the leader of a whole area of churches, several hundred congregations up in the hills and in this one town. And Warku was asked to be the coordinator, the fellowship of these, uh, of these fellowship of churches. Uh, it was shortly after that that the Marxist government began to stretch its muscles a little bit. And t- try to show the Christians that they were really in charge. So they put Wataku in prison and they closed down more- most of the churches. So now Wataku, because he has put God first, is in prison. Well, the Marxists recognized very quickly that this man was a natural born leader and people would follow him. So they came to him in prison and they said, Wataku, we've got a deal for you. Uh, you know, right now, we not only have you in prison, but we've made it difficult for your family. Your children are not in school. Uh, or they don't have the right funds to be able to get, go to school, buy their textbooks and everything. But, you know, we can make things real easy for you. We like to release you from prison if you will come and work with us. And you don't have to, you don't have to deny your faith in your heart. You just can't say anything out loud about it. You don't even have to deny Jesus publicly. All you have to do is work with us and keep your mouth shut about your Christian faith and people will follow you and we can have some positive things happen here in this district and we'll see that your children get a great education how about it tempting isn't it as a dad he'd be very very tempted to say you know oh, boy my kids need this okay i'll go along with it keep my mouth shut not say anything about you know, leave my church position not say anything at all about my faith but what if we said no i can't do that that would be denying my lord and i'm not going to do it so he stayed in prison They did allow him to keep his Bible in prison. And as he was there, he realized that this was actually an answer to prayer because he had wanted special time set aside to translate the Scriptures, the New Testament, from the national language of Amharic into his own local tribal language, which was called Gedidnya. And so he realized this is a great opportunity. So he gets paper and pencil and his Bible and he starts translating. He was in prison for a year and a half. Just enough time to finish the translation of the New Testament. And then the leaders, of the uh, the communist leaders came and said, you know, this isn't accomplishing anything. We're just going to release you. Go on home. Thoreau goes home, and he begins organizing his churches into effective meeting house groups. Churches begin to meet. People begin coming to Christ. Um, He started a school that was officially a trade school, where... Young men could come and learn a trade. But by the way, they were also learning the Bible and learning ministry skills. And that begins to have an even more powerful impact on his area. He also started several development projects. Together with our mission agency, SIM, they began to do water development and reforestation projects and agricultural development projects in that area. Positive things to help the people through a very difficult time. The Ethiopia famine that took place in the mid-1980s. Wadukwu and his district were doing things that would help get that part of the country out of famine. Uh, Marsh and I paid a visit down during one of that times, and a whole group of church people organized to carry water down to a part of the country where they had resettled some people. The Marxist government had resettled some people in the desert area. They didn't have any water. The Christians carried truckloads of water down to them to be able to deliver this to them. Wadukwu and the church organized to meet physical need, as well as to carry the gospel to people in that area. When the Marxist government collapsed in 1991, the town held a massive parade to celebrate freedom. And the, church, the town leaders came to Watercoo and they said, "Waterku, we want to thank you for all you have done for our town, for our district, during these years of communism. Would you and the church lead the parade and march in the front? When you put God first in your plans, He uses you in His to accomplish something significant for Him. And what of Roland Bingham that we left on that steamship heading back from West Africa? Well, God used Roland Bingham to found the mission agency that Marsh and I were a part of for a long time called the Sudan Interior Mission. Eventually, hundreds of missionaries went to West Africa. In those same areas where Kent and Gowans had died, there are now hundreds and hundreds of churches, thousands of believers, in fact, that whole area spread out a little bit is the country of Nigeria today. And the church group that was founded as a result of their work is called, well, let's see, they've changed the name now. It's not the Evangelical Church of West Africa. It's Evangelical Church Winning Africa. They just renamed themselves. Evangelical Church Winning Africa. You know, they have right now between six and 7,000 congregations of believers. And some have estimated as many as 8 million Adherents to their church, people who have professed Jesus Christ as Savior and are members of their church. Eight million, along with all of what's happened through the ministry of SIM. So over 20,000 churches planted across Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Because Roland Bingham put God first. What's God saying to you today? How does he want you to put him first? Because when we put God first in our plans, he uses us in his But if we ignore God in our plans, he'll ignore us in his spiritual oblivion. Let's bow for prayer. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm just going to ask you right now. What's God saying to you today? What does he want you to do to put him first? Maybe make a commitment that you're willing to consider a block of time for cross-cultural service. Maybe a person you need to visit A person you need to focus on in your place of work or your neighborhood or your school. Just reaching out to them and showing them the love of Christ in some way. Maybe some sacrificial giving. Maybe a little more time spent in prayer. Maybe getting up a half hour earlier or giving up a television program every now and then. Just focusing on praying for missions. How does God want you to put him first? Take a moment right now. If you're here this morning, too, and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, the first way that you need to put him first is to do that. To recognize that you are a sinner, separated from God for all eternity because of your sin. And that putting God first, first of all, is nothing you can do through your efforts. Because your sin has separated you from God. All you can do is trust Christ and what he has done in his death and resurrection for your salvation. You can trust him. A simple prayer that says, Lord, I know I can never make myself good enough for you, but I trust what Jesus has done as payment for my sin. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray this morning that each of us will choose to put you first in some area of our lives and take these simple acts of dedication, Lord, all over this congregation, for prayer, for giving, for going, spending time with individuals, Father, and use them for your glory to accomplish something really special for all eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.